We are live. Uh, you know what? Uh, I- I'm going to let our guest introduce himself. How about that, Brian? Oh, hi, I'm Brian Usna. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we we know that other guy too. Yeah, he's been on here a couple times. This is Nick Benson and Brian Usna, and uh, uh, kind of one. I'm the... Nick, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh wait, yeah. wrong Sorry. <laughs> that's that was er- that was earlier today, buddy. Come on. It's actually yeah. uh, a funny story how this episode came to be. So I want to say about three weeks ago, Mick came to me and said, we kind of hit a dry spell, buddy. And I said, I agree. I think it's time that we take a couple weeks off and stock up on some guests. He goes, do you have any ideas? And I said, I'd really like to talk to Brian Musen at some point. And he said, I think <laughs> I can make that happen because Nick Benson worked with him. He's a- <laughs> <laughs> Brian <laughs> like that mythical unicorn. You can, yes. you can sometimes see him, but. Not often. <laughs> so well, now I can knock off my checklist of some of the people I've talked to. And it's thank you for coming on, Brian. It's definitely, pleasure. yeah, it's an awesome opportunity. I I, I, I want to say that, uh, that uh, for, first of all, I've, I've worked with um, Screaming Mad George and Nick before on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And, mm. uh, and, and they had, they had this bizarre film in common. And, uh, I, went I forced the, him to watch it. You forced, <laughs> he literally forced me to watch it in a hotel room. Yeah. Uh, up, up in, up in Pennsylvania. And, well, uh, we were talking about Mr. Trump, I believe. Yeah. So we were, he goes, well, I got a film that's really topical about all that. <laughs> And and this is what came of it. And I have to say, uh, I uh, it's it is such a strange experience, but uh, but I loved it. I mean, my God, <laughs> the scene that TJ hasn't even seen yet. Uh, yeah, the, the stuff in the house. Oh my God! You know, it, it's it, it gives a new relevancy to you know up your ass. I will have to say, I've seen about every other movie Brian's made, horror related. So. I think we we can have a relative discussion. You're in the groove. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, anyway, I I love to meet you. I I am a big fan. And and by big, I mean about 300 pounds. So (laughs) (laughs) fat Jesus coming at you. Fat fat Jesus. (laughs) And, 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 And you and I, you and I are movie contemporaries. We were we were working together in roughly through the same period, you know. The eighties, nineties. Yeah, yeah, the eighties and nineties, and yeah, yeah, the the early thousands and and stuff. And uh, well, it's gone from the early early video to the post to the post video. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 and. Uh, and the stuff that you were doing, I, I was going to say that we, we were on a, a when when I was doing my films and I was working a lot for New Line Cinema, there was like uh, there were like three or four groups around that, that were intermixing around town that were making horror films that were trading uh, different uh, uh, different crews and stuff. And, and we were all using the same crew members one way or another. And and um, I feel so used. Yes, and you were. <laughs> and 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 your group, the uh, uh, I sort of considered is the 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 uh, the, the Stuart Gordon uh, reenactors all the way on over to um, uh, uh, 
to the trauma people. That was like one group. And then, uh, uh, and then the Beekler, uh, uh, the, the, the full moon guys like full that. Moon. Yeah. Full, yeah. Well, I, I always, I always in my head, I put full moon in together with, um, with Corman's, uh, yeah, Corman's yeah. stuff. Ah, Richard Bannon. And, and, yeah. and then that stuff, I, it, and, and I was working kind of, uh, the new line cinema renaissance group mm -hmm. and it just seems like all these groups were like interspilling in amongst each other all the time and we were using they were all, and we they were all being written about by fangoria yes <laughs> <laughs> and i would say that fangoria was like kind of the uh, common thread that, that ran through all of us huh well it yeah. was in a way it definitely was sort of like the newspaper of record or something you know you just wanted to get get your stuff you know get a few photos really yeah. <laughs> really you, you, i i remember that uh, uh we were always uh we were always passing back and forth a couple of the reporters but like, trying to get them to come to set <laughs> so uh that that was you know so so anyway uh, I don't, I don't know if you remember him, but the Nick Benson was uh, deep down inside of the sofa. I think. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I there was there were about a dozen or more people down in there. <laughs> very, I think with a very rudimentary, very rudimentary video feed, like very oh, rudimentary. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah that's a, that was though though now well, what that's, what, the, that's the beauty of the shunting is it's a it's a puppet show it, it was you know? it's, in in it's so many more ways than a puppet act yeah and it was a it, it was kind of a puppet act about a puppet act yeah I guess <laughs> <laughs> and, and and what a great uh, comment on society uh, uh, that. It, it kind of goes along with. Uh, did you ever see a film called Eating Raoul? Of course, I I, I had met um, Paul Bartel, and yeah. my friend Kim Deitch did the comic book of it. Oh, great! So, so you know the the whole concept of eating the rich. Uh, mm -hmm. it, th this seemed to be the answer to that. That's the rich eating back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was a T-shirt back in the six, late '60s, early '70s that said "Eat the Rich." Right. And actually, one of the characters in society wears it to the party, but unfortunately, he had a shirt on, and you can't read it very oh. well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I I love this the scene, and uh, uh, this is a spoiler, TJ, but. Uh, you know, occasionally I, I accuse you of eating, of uh, talking out your ass. Well, in a more, in a little bit, you're going to see what that looks like. Oh, I saw the butthead scene. You saw the butthead. Oh, yeah, I, I saw, saw the butthead, butthead scene. Well, I mean, yeah, a that, friend that, of mine, friend of mine, um, is trying to do a series based on the Blood Island, Beast of Blood movies from the right. early '60s, and so one of the promotions is, is you know. These these tiki mugs, you know, at the tiki bars. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. This is you've probably seen. Maybe don't remember the Beast of Blood, but here's a mask of it. 
Let's see if you can oh, that. oh, that's awesome! Remember the Beast of Blood? Oh. That's awesome! He, he, um, oh, that's great! You know, he, I love it. he has his hand held up, holding up his head. Filipino <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that's a. Um, uh, so he's got a tiki mug of the Beast of Blood. It's like a two-parter. It's downstairs, maybe I'll go down and get it. And um, so the head comes off. You have two drinks. But I thought, wow, there should be a. I, I didn't know about this whole tiki mug thing. People oh, like yeah, spend a, a lot of money on these different. You get every kind of tiki mug, yeah. and I thought, oh wow, a butthead tiki mug would be kind of cool. <laughs> you know, you're drinking out of your ass. <laughs> you're drinking out of your ass again. God damn it! <laughs> you know, they, they cost anywhere. They cost anywhere from like thirty to like hundred and fifty or more bucks. Oh, more sometimes, yeah. yeah I mean, more they're, they're incredible, you know. Yeah. I think his. I think the ones that he's putting out, he's basically he's only really doing it to promote, so that he'll have something to take into the studios. You know, they all. Right. You always have to bring them a toy or something, you know, um, <laughs> a shiny object, you know, to, to and, distract um, them. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that, but they cost like 120 bucks, 130 for him. I guess he's, I think it costs him about half that to make it. It's expensive, but well, that's, if that's you're trying to get a, if you're trying to get a movie made, you know, so you got, yeah, you know, you got to put up something. It takes every trick in the books these days, mm -hmm. doesn't it? So does that mean we're, that I need to make a monkey mug now? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's well, I didn't, I didn't realize because he sold out, and I thought, God, I, that's 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 like a little business, you know. You got to get somebody to do it that knows what they're doing. But you think, wow, oh, well, a limited edition. It's a great great way to commemorate a movie. You for know? sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 So. um You've been involved in a couple, uh, a couple of movies. Uh, the Speaking of tiki mugs, uh, Return of the Living Dead Three would be a good tiki mug. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have the rights to that one. But oh, yeah, <laughs> that one should have a. I mean, that's you know, Julie should definitely should be a posable figure. She should. She oh has yeah, a classic character, you know. And actually, there's a bunch of a bunch of good characters in it. You made the perfect yeah. love story with zombies. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one. I think, it I think it's, it's a movie that just, um, it always suffered by, because it, um, because it didn't have a good title. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just the most awkward all time of all time title. You know? Yes. You know, return of return of the living dead is all, <laughs> already a ready film, right? Yeah. Return of Living Dead Part Three. Yeah, you kind of go. You can't put another label. Dude. You can't give it another. You can't call it the. Well, we, I remember Nightmare on Elm Street always had a title for each one. The Dream, right? Yeah. right. Dream the, Warrior, Dream, yeah, Dream Warrior, Dream Warriors. Right? Not that yeah. it really mattered, I guess. But I think what no, it was, no. was that Return of the Living Dead Two kind of I, didn't work, and so then. There's no real advantage, but it, but usually it wasn't return of nightmare on Elm street dream yeah. warrior. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, it, it, if you think that de it doesn't matter, uh, I did this stupid film. I was, uh, art director, construction coordinator on a film called, uh, electric, electric boogaloo. And it was, yeah, actually, yeah. it was the second, uh, 
Break it two. Break it two, right? <laughs> and the thing is, is this is nobody even remembers breaking one because, because the second one is an electric boogaloo. Because it's called electric boogaloo. It's That's right. Absolutely. absolutely. It's, In I fact, virtual con that I was just on has a pin that says electric boogaloo. Right. <laughs> it follows me everywhere. I was like, wow, really? You wouldn't know about that? What the hell? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they still today it's even more so. The thing is, is sometimes, well, Return to the Living Dead 3 was very much not like the other ones. No. And the only thing, the only thing that the that Trimark, the, the company that made it, um, insisted on was that it have the trioxin gas and that it have brain eating. And other than that, they didn't care. And I got that, you know, I cleared that up with them up front because the second one, um, they had to put in, I guess it was financed by some Japanese money, and they insisted on having the same actors and even mm -hmm. the same characters that had already died. Yep, yep. <laughs> so that's a very, that's an awkward thing. Of course, you know, it suffered more because the director really didn't want to make it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the problem. <laughs> You know, he really, he he really um, wasn't that into it. You can tell if you ever hear the commentary by him. It's just mm. all he's doing is saying, you know, I didn't want to do this thing, and, <laughs> and it and it kind That's of right didn't. Front. So it kind of, you know, it it kind of diminished the value of the next one. Mm -hmm. It diminished the next sequel down to yep. the level that they would get me to do it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> if they go for me, it's got to be like all the way down. You know, it's got to be worthless by that point. And um, but for some reason, I don't know why I didn't want to do it. I, I had I never can. Usually, I've done a lot of sequels, and I'm usually like really into trying to make it kind of work, except for a couple of them that I've done that where I just kind of. Just did yeah, it. Yeah. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one was the Silent Night ones, and yeah, and that's right. <laughs> Return of the Living Dead, and I don't know why I didn't want to do the ironic kind of, you know, sort of insidious humor type mm -hmm. of thing because I do it all the time. Right. Yeah. It's a natural. Yeah. It's a it's a natural Place thing to for me. But for some reason, I remember when I was working on it because I first worked on that project with a couple of producers, uh, Joel Castleberg and Denitza Minor, who it turned out didn't have the rights. Oh. <laughs> so we <laughs> tried to get it get it going. And um, so I had been working on it. And believe it or not, even back then, I think this must have been 1992 or something, 91 or two, I forget. Even then, I thought, what can what more can you do with a zombie movie? Yeah, there's been so much. What more yeah. could you do? Of course, now we're like 25 years later. And so I had thought that um, that the best that the what I wanted to do was a movie where the where the living dead would be the main character, where the zombie yes. would be a main character. Right. Which hadn't been done. It it a little bit in Day of the Dead, mm -hmm. you know, with the Bubba character. But it, and in and in Night of the and in Return of the Living Dead, 
when they're changing the two guys, uh, I forget their names, you know, from the medical. But you were the first to characterize that zombie. To oh, really, exactly. Yeah. Because and one reason was that I thought that would that would turn over the the structure of the story just yes. by just by making you be with the one who's changing, not right. yeah. seeing it as seeing every zombie as a threat, but also because on Bride of Reanimator, I um, spent the whole movie getting the bride to come alive. And oh. it wasn't till the middle of the third act that the bride right. comes to life. And when I finally watched the whole movie, I went, wow, she's the best character. <laughs> and she has no screen time. Yeah, I should have done much more with her. You know, yeah. I, I was in a way I was I think I was modeling it on the um, on Bride of Frankenstein, where right, where right. Bride yes. comes to life at the very end. You know, yeah. at the very it's, end, and and, it, and it's, exactly. it's everybody's undoing. Yeah. yeah, and it was a similar thing. It was the flip, though. In Bride of Frankenstein, the um, Frankenstein monster loves the bride, and she thinks he's repulsive. Right, right. and in this, she's wants her creator Dan Kane to love her and he's disgusted by her. Which is yeah. really which is really the theme of the original Frankenstein book. Because that's right. That's well, where I went for bride as I went to that original book. So you know, you, when I when I when I did make the bride, then later I thought, man, I want this to be the, the movie. And so the so that was one of the influences on having Julie be the story. She right. is the yeah. story, you right. know. You don't have to wait till the end to see her, and I and I think it's a very, it's it's a real romance. It know? is it's a real it romance. Is. I mean, you get it kind of works even if you took the fantastic out of it. I think the beats kind of work. It's like yep. she could have just been a drug addict, yes, right? and her yes. boyfriend just doesn't want to accept how depraved she's become. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, it's it's great, you know, just like like in Bride of Frankenstein where. You know, Frankenstein finally learns uh, how to speak, uh, so he can just finally say, "Wow, I'm fucked." No. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny how they never let him speak after that. Well, yeah. Well, you know, then with then with um, with Son of Frankenstein, and what was the next one? Ghost of Frankenstein, yeah, or right, whatever. Right. They just they just backed off and said, well, "No, it, we're it, gonna." It it didn't work out well for him. Speaking? Yes. <laughs> no, hey, the Frankenstein monster never died. He well, the original, the original, the original Frankenstein, he couldn't speak. I mean, the, I, and I don't mean that he couldn't you speak. Mean, oh, mean, no, you're talking about the movie now, the first the, movie. Yeah, the yeah. first movie, he it's couldn't speak. Spoke, yeah. they, they didn't, they, the way that they yeah. had built, they were using a plaster appliance mm -hmm. over o, over his face mm -hmm. and and he couldn't have said anything if you tried. <laughs> well, you know, one of the one you know, when I was working on Bride, and we had to get that script done like in two months before we right. started pre-production because I had a we had money from the Japanese, and we had to shoot the first week in June. Right. So that, I don't know if it was a tax thing, but it was yeah. kind of like. If you shoot by the first week in June, the money's there. Right. And if you don't, we can, then we've got to go back to the drawing board. Right. And so 
so I worked with Woody Keith and Rick Pry, the writers for Society, on it. And we actually started the script from, I think it was two months, like in February. And we started pre-production on May 1st. And, um, and we just came up, we just had to come up with the story Helter Skelter as we went. And so one of the things I did was I looked at the short stories, the Lovecraft short stories again, and mm. tried to find anything we hadn't used. Yeah. <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> you know, whatever was like the doodling with body parts, that's in the stories. Right. You know, the goop, the goop where you can, which is actually in the short stories is the logic behind the head being able to be alive. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in reanimator, we just didn't want to, we just kept it simple. It's just the serum. But in the stories, you have to get the goop from the from the lizard in South America or something <laughs> where anything can grow and he can do, make all these weird body part things. And and I had all I had on every version we ever worked on the one thing that never never was that was always in it besides Herbert West and Dan Kane was the finger eye creature. Because ah. I just had that. I just wanted to see that creature. I wanted to see that guy. So everything had to be back engineered so you could have that character, you mm -hmm. know. But um, the other thing I did was look at the um, I I read I had read Frankenstein back uh, when I was like a teenager, you know, when I read Dracula and, you know, H.G. Wells and all that stuff, you know, in my my teens. And um, I hated Frankenstein. I thought it was unreadable. It was just terrible kind of plotting kind of story. Yeah, it was. Kind of language. And then when I was making Bride, I went back to it because I had the Bernie Wrightson um, um, uh, illustrated version. Bernie Wrightson had done illustrations for the book. And it was right. still the same text as Mary Shelley. And then, you know, being 20 years older, all of a sudden I was like really kind of amazed by it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't put off by the style of storytelling. Right, and right. I had also had wondered why, what could be in that book that would make an actor like Boris Karloff go through what he went through for the makeup? I understand he even had teeth pulled, so his so his cheeks That's would sell in, and right. and you kind of go, wow, there must be must be something in there to to make there must be something to inspire that. Right. And then when I read the book and saw the whole, what I took from it was that whole, and the book has the bride in it, the maid, right. mm -hmm. they call it all, all I, the way all, all the way to his death up 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 in the eyes flows and yeah. the rest of that. The, but but the book the thing is is the the engineering of the book and the death and 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 collecting the corpses and all the rest of that is uh, is such a small part of the book oh, yeah, yeah. and it's and that, a movie <laughs> yeah Nick. well the movie was a was like i guess it would be the first modern horror movie in the sense that it kind of created the, the universal monsters sort of created this kind of monster movie that we mm -hmm. still go back to. I'm not saying that was the earliest thing. I think Nosferatu is still the best vampire yes. movie ever made. Ever. 
ever. One. We had this and discussion a couple weeks ago. Nobody's, <laughs> been able to, yeah. nobody's been able to match it. But what oh. I thought about Mary Shelley's story was that what struck me was this idea that the creature was rejected by by it wasn't Victor Frankenstein, it's Henry Frankenstein or whatever. Right, right. But Victor's in the movie. Um, but was was rejected by Frankenstein, mm -hmm. Dr. Frankenstein. He just thought he was an abomination. And I thought, wow, that's something we've all kind of, you know, that's something you can feel about your parents, that they, your parents reject you because you're just such a fuck up or something, mm -hmm. or you're not good enough, or you've, <laughs> You know, you're in love with someone and and they kind of think you're a putz or something. Or on a much grander existential scale, it's that humanity, you know, God has looked at humanity and said, this stinks. I'm <laughs> out of here. You uh, and then out. you've got to kind of come out. up with your own idea of what, what's of value. But anyway, I thought that theme was great. That, that was the, I thought that was a great heart for a movie, you know. Uh, Nick, the, uh, you got to work on uh, Bride as well. Uh, what contributions did you have for that film? Honestly, it was really, really early on okay. um, when they were just starting out, and it was I was getting ready to move. I was at George's studio, and it's actually interesting that Brian brought up the finger, the finger creature because that early design for that came from me. It was a hand ah. that I gave to George and, uh, and told him that we should do something like that, and I think he modified it into the finger creature. Excellent. Excellent. Full circle there. Say we can connect everybody. It's like that degrees of bacon thing for horror. <laughs> Speaking of bacon, uh, uh, Arrow uh, Video just really is releasing a 4K Tremors release here soon. Oh, wow. Yeah. That I just said, uh, yeah. I just pre-ordered the. Uh, there had been, I, I didn't realize there's been like ten of those things. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just found that reading out. an article about it. I read some article where they listed them from worst to best. <laughs> yeah. There were like, like nine or ten of them. Just bizarre, yeah. bizarre ones. You know. I guess it's like the howling or. Or I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but they have they gone to space yet? Because that's that no, was, they well, haven't gone Friday to space the, yet. So. Friday the thirteenth is the only yeah, one that was space tremors. They made it. They made it. Well, space space tremors is actually Dune. Let's be okay, clear. Where the origins are. Yeah. I bow before you. 100%. That was brilliant. All right. Nice catch. So, Brian, you got to work with Stuart Gordon on a couple projects who also adapted other H.P. Lovecraft stories. Uh, I watched Castle Freak for the first time, and I realized that that was an adaptation of The Outsider, and that just blew my mind. Have you watched that film? Yeah, well, I saw it when it came out. I didn't work on that because by that time I was in, in a lawsuit with with old Charlie Band, and ah. so I, I, I I bailed I bailed in the on the during the development of RoboJocks. I was I was producing RoboJocks when we developed it, but after at one point I couldn't really work with 
empire because they had they had not paid the money they were supposed to oh, pay. Oh, that given is them, such a reoccurring story. Them, I hear. Um, wait, wait, Charlie Band, you say? <laughs> that never happened. I, I just well, can't I, believe, I like I just to, can't believe that. I like to say that Charlie Band would own a studio by now if he wasn't ethically challenged. <laughs> Because he's because it's for my money. Hey, if it was my money, he's always been like one step ahead yeah. of the exploitation market. And well, yeah, I always and I and that's the part of the movies I like. I like that. Yeah, that well, Roger I, Corman. I grew up with the Corman Poe series, which is very influential on me. When I was a te- when I was in middle school, it's when. The Pit and the Pendulum and yes. House of Usher. Oh, right, right, right. And right. so a lot of, and when I, and um, like the opening sequence of, of rea- doing the credit sequence of Reanimator was inspired by the Poe series credits where he had poor paint and it would kind of, mm. <laughs> you know, it was like, you don't have to have a credit sequence. You only got to put the names up there or now they just <laughs> put them at the end. But I loved the idea of the credit sequence. Some of it was from that, and the and when in Bride of Reanimator, when Hill's head floats out in the beginning, that's basically House on Haunted Hill or any yeah. one of those of those William Castle movies where right. the heads talk to you. They were ghostly right, because right. they were superimpositions. But I thought, wow, I'm going to do it with blood in color. You know, it's just like when Hammer did Dracula. Yeah, it was in color. There oh, was yeah. red blood and heaving bosoms, and it was a whole new thing. And I think that's that's kind of you know you keep going back to the stuff you liked when you were a kid. The um, Necronomicon is really yes. tales of terror that Poe movie, oh. except with a wraparound. I don't think I, any I, of the stories reach the level of the Black Cat, Cask of Amontillado story with Peter Laurie and Vincent Price and right. Tales of Terror, which but, I think is one of the all-time great entertainment. But, but all of us, but all of us old fucks uh, re- remember be- because all these films didn't have a place to exhibit anywhere. All, all this, all the films in the thirties and the forties and the fifties, all those horror films, especially they they didn't have a place to exhibit anymore, and so they were all on the uh, in the late night. Uh, yeah, they were on TV. Yeah, we saw they them all the time. They had packages of um, they put together packages for late like, night TV. Yeah, and with Doctor Goulardi or, or or you know whoever was the the um, right chiller the show uh, host making fun of it. Right, exactly, and and the thing is, is it in that way that we we all kind of grew up. By the time the eighties came along, and we were all involved in film, we all had these really common experiences. Wanted to do those things. <laughs> we wanted to do those. My things, favorite, right? my favorite, um, my favorite host was a fake one. It was Guy Caballero in SCTV. You remember? That? <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah. he would go. Very scary. <laughs> I was, I, I, I mean, Vampira to me was like uh, amazing, but there was also another, uh, 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 a couple of other guys 
that you know were doing Channel Nine or Channel Five or something like that. But the thing is, they came, they gave us, they they gave us a commonality, uh, and it was the only place for any of those films to be shown. Yeah, you know, and they were shown constantly. Uh, yeah, because they, yeah, because they were old films. The, right, um, right. The sixties stuff and seventies stuff uh, were shown in theaters, and right. um, so and so were and the, and then there were there were drive-ins. I saw the I saw oh, the exactly. Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff at drive-in. Mm. I know, saw the, go to the drive-in and and you'd see like what the you know the ten thousand thousand maniacs. You know? <laughs> I, I saw the skull in the theater, you know, with that that oh, glowing, yeah, that's a great that, one. that yeah. glowing that glowing green uh-huh. skull as it came in. Uh, the other one that I thought saw in the theater that I thought was hilarious was the the uh, the brain, the, the one where the brain at the end is on a stand and it's chasing everybody around. <laughs> oh, I know what you're about talking about. Without a face. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> without a face, there's lots of them. Oh, man. And I think they've got a little spinal cord yes. coming right, out. Right, they got a little spinal yeah. cord. Basically, yeah. the spinal cord was the thing that went down onto the stand. <laughs> and it would like be running around after everybody. Was just, <laughs> that's, that's, that was some high-quality shit back then, man. I, I love that stuff. <laughs> and the thing is, is we all knew how silly it was and still loved it. <laughs> <laughs> And then we, yeah. I mean, I think now I know it's silly. I'm not sure that when I watched that stuff, I just thought that was the movie. But yeah, I just thought this is the movie, and and you had to accept the quality of the effects back then. They were very poor, and you had to accept the only thing that you couldn't accept was it being boring. Right. That no, was the right. only thing. But, but the idea that the acting wasn't good or the story wasn't good, but, who knew? Who knew, but, you know? But how about that humorous edge that James Whale uh, brought to Frankenstein and the Invisible Man? I mean, come on. But yeah. those are but those are top of those are top of the line. I mean, now you're talking yeah. real A yeah. movies, you know. Well, yeah, but but at the same time, the, you know, those were also playing at the same time, like uh, in concert. Uh, you're talking at about night. the late night. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah but when I first when I first saw the the um, the Universal horror movies, or at least the early ones, right. the first Frankenstein ones, etc. Right. I saw them in junior high on TV when that first package went out, mm-hmm. and they would right. show one a week or every Tuesday right. night. And then by the sixty, by the by the late sixties, they were on at eleven o'clock. Yeah, you know, was Friday and yeah, Saturday, right. and they would maybe show two of them or something. Right, and you, you would. And I, I, I even remember staying up to watch, to watch oh, yeah. Plan Nine from Outer Space and mm-hmm. and Monster from Green Hell because I had read about them in um, Famous Monsters. So that well, was, see- for me that was my link is I'd read Famous Monsters. Yeah. And I'd see these pictures of like the hideous sun demon. Right. Go, oh, I got to see that movie. <laughs> when I finally saw it, I'm going, it's like 65 minutes, and then you get to see the monster. <laughs> you see well, you know, the, the thing that I'm saying is, is like, uh, the, to me, the pinnacle of all those films uh, came out as um, Mel Brooks. Uh, Bride of Frank, uh, Mel Brooks. I think, I think Frank, that, 
Young Frankenstein, Young Frankenstein was was literally almost played bit by bit out of all those movies, little pieces that were just. I made. almost, I could almost say that the best, the best universal horror movies, monster movies, were uh, that melt that Young Frankenstein was top four. Right. And actually, <laughs> actually, I put actually I put Abbott and Costello meet the monsters. Oh, absolutely, that's, absolutely. That's, I mean, because, and I liked Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. I just wish they hadn't used a zip up mummy mummy suit. Yeah, <laughs> come on, you know, you know. But I love I love the ones where they actually have the monsters. You know. Yeah. Right. Right. Well. Yeah, and, and then and then again, you know, by the time it got up to the eighties, uh, you you had to turn around and explain to your producer uh, why why you didn't want to show, you know, uh, your your uh, thirty five thousand dollar monster all the time, <laughs> because God damn it, I paid thirty five thousand dollars for that, and I said yes. But it's going to work best if you can only see it for five seconds. <laughs> well, I learned I learned early on that the way first of all, when I started making movies, I w I only wanted to make horror movies, right? Or at least fantasy horror, more so than say sci-fi. I I liked horror, right? And fantasy is basically horror with a happy ending and a little higher key lighting, right? The, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I learned with the effects because I worked with so many, so many people that would kind of go, oh, they go crazy over the effects. They never work. I say, of course they never work. They're called special effects. For if reason. they always work, they wouldn't be special effects. Absolutely. You, know, you have to invent something. It's it's not. Of course, it's not. You can't expect it to work. Yeah. But of course, in production, everybody. The, the drive of production is to be able to quantify every stage yeah, of yeah, the production absolutely. So, that they, so that the budget comes out right and it's spent on time. Yeah, and this, of course, sex gets in the way of that. And then there ends up being, and usually the studio or the, you know, the executive producers, they don't want to, they really don't know how it, they, they don't get how it's done and that, you just have to keep shooting until something works, you know. Yeah, right. I learned early on that what that the way to make something make rubber come to life is you just have to like put some smoke, some goop, some blinking light, <laughs> and you know it has a chance. And a lot of chills. <laughs> things can work, you know. Yeah. But yeah. you can't just like even sure. even our good friends, Screaming Mad George, I. I certainly had some, some. I've had issues with him, especially on Necronomicon. At the end of Necronomicon, I remember when the guy pulls his face off, the the Omniati monk or something, and George just wanted it to be lit so you could see his work, his sculpture. <laughs> you go, you know what? Just pour no, a bunch of goop no. in there. You can't, you can't, you know, it, it's... <laughs> You can't shoot it so dry, you know. You can't go wrong. You've got to be careful. You've got to. I just feel like, like with rubber effects, rubber and puppets, which is basically. I always thought the '80s should have been called the revenge. It was the revenge of the, not the revenge, the invasion of the rubber guys. 
because <laughs> all those movies in the eighties, these were these were effects guys. You know, Nick, you you lived it. Yeah. You'd go into their in the studio. Everybody's wearing a black shirt with ACDC or some fuck metal band. The music's blasting. <laughs> They're sculpting these these you know weird monsters. And for every one of those guys, there's only two two possible paths in life: either to be a rock and roll star or to make monsters for the movie. <laughs> that's it. You know? And that that's the, that's the culture that created those effects. You know? That was you know I remember every every um every Nightmare on Elm Street would be like. They're all competing with each other. Who got this scene? Who got that scene? What new What new thing were were, were they going to do with methicillulose? Hey, foam that, latex. You know? I I was the one that said you did this and you did that and you did that. <laughs> that was my job, boy. <laughs> hey, well, listen, Brian. It's been a blast having you on. I really have. Yes, it uh, How? So, what are you doing these days? And um, is there any way that we can send uh, send money your way? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you my bank account. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, That's totally what I meant. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. I, you know, I have all my. Hey, I'm working on a uh, on a society TV series. Oh, in England. We'll see. So, you never know with this stuff, right? You never. You, know. you never look. You never know. I've got a. I've got a. I've got a book being published with Crosswords Roads Press. It's Excellent. called The Pope. Oh. It's about a seminary dropout who dresses up like the Pope and kills pedophile priests. <laughs> kind of a, it's kind of a. It starts out as a psycho killer movie and becomes a superhero origin movie. It's got a lot to do with with um sort of like Dan Brown type of secret secret history stuff. So a so, so a comedy, right? It's tongue in cheek, yeah. Tongue I mean it's ironic. Let's yeah. put it that way. No, it actually was based on a script that I wrote with John Penny, um, which um John Penny's the guy who wrote Return of the Living Dead Three. Oh, and gotcha. um and so we wrote the script uh, quite a while ago and then he thought oh you know we should do you know it's just the script Not, uh, you know I don't know if any of you guys have ever tried to get a script made into a movie nobody no. reads the script nobody they never read the script the only no, people nobody who are here has done anything like someone that. who's paid to be a reader you know and then they'll, they'll get, right. they'll oh, get yeah, some I... notes to, so it just doesn't happen and, um, and so yeah. we thought well let's make a comic book and so we did a did one issue of a four comic book adaptation um, that was the art was done by Richard Raphorse, who who directed Frankenstein's Army. Ooh. And he also worked on he did a bunch of he's done a lot of concept art for me when I lived in Europe. You know, I spent all that time in Spain making the Fantastic Factory movies. I I relocated yeah. to Barcelona and worked with the Spanish company. And then I actually ended up living in, actually I lived in, 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 a, in a townhouse, I guess you'd call it a townhouse, it was about 200 years old, in Hauda, Netherlands. 
that was that Rick Richard Raphorst and his wife had, and um, <laughs> worked with him on a lot of the concept art for the for the um, for the, the Fantastic Factory movies. Mm -hmm. And I also worked with him on the with him and the, his partners on um, on worst case scenario. I don't know if you've seen the 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 promos of worst case scenario. If you haven't, you definitely should. He's doing a graphic novel of it now. And oh, Frankenstein's cool. army came out of that because mm. he needed something that he didn't have any partners with. I love and that. So, movie. so he can do his weird stuff. Yeah. Is <laughs> so he's got a very straight he's a, he's an incredible artist. So he did storyboards for me on Faust and concept art. He yeah. did concept art on Beyond Reanimator, um, uh, on a lot of the movies I did, Dagon. Um, mm. He, but usually one of the problems when you're doing low budget movies is that there's not really a lot of money to throw around for yeah. developmental conceptual type stuff. It's right. There you has to, to be a it. line item. Yeah, that's it has right. To be, yeah. So it has to be like the storyboard artist, which is always very little money. And a concept artist is just someone, for me, it's just someone that I collaborate with, that I just right, right. say, hey, what yeah. can we do? Let's try something. Uh, I, I would say, you know, with Screaming Mad George on Society, we, we the script, the original script of Society didn't have, um, didn't have the shunting. I wanted no. the shunting because I didn't want to, I, I liked the paranoia of the, of the movie, of yeah. the script. Uh, because it was the same kind of paranoia that I had been living for about seven months while I worked with Dan O'Bannon late nights on a script called The Men, which was about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And when that we fell are. out, I had already had this whole world of paranoia, the secret worlds and stuff. And so when I saw the script that, that Rick Fry and Woody Keith had, I went, wow, this is that same paranoia, you know, and it has this weird Beverly Hills class thing and all that. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to direct the movie, you know, you direct the movie, you may never get another chance, you know. Right. Usually I had a, a, a French distributor who used to tell me, you know, most first time directors make two movies in one with their first movie. Their first movie and their last movie. <laughs> and I had carefully, I had the rights. To, I owned Reanimator because I paid for it. Mm -hmm. I had the rights to the sequel. So I went to my friend, uh, Paul White and Woody Keith, who had started a company called Wild Street Pictures. And I said, listen, I'll, you can do the sequel to Reanimator, but I'm going to direct it. And it has to be a two-picture deal. I got to do two movies. And the second one will be Bride of Reanimator. Because I figured I've never taken a film class in my life. I, I have no, believe me, I didn't even start make. I think I made Reanimator when I was 35. I just came to LA and said, I'm going to make movies. I, have, I had no preparation, you know, in the world to make movies. So I thought I only learned by, because I was the producer on Reanimator. I hired everybody. So I just watched what they did. And then when right. I decided I'm going to try to direct, I thought, wow, <laughs> most people really fail on their first movie. You know, you could really screw it up. So 
I want to make sure I get a second chance. So I'll do, because I knew they would do Bride of Reanimator yeah. no matter what. But with society, I thought that, you know, if I'm going to do a movie, I sure as hell is going to put some fucking effects in it, you know? And I want these effects to be stuff I haven't seen before. And I had always had, I used to have this nightmare about flesh molding and stuff. And I thought, that's what I'd like to see, is flesh melding together. And so then we, I just tried to back engineer that idea with Woody Keith and Rick Fry to come up with some concept that would, in, would make that possible. And Screaming Mad George had been proposed to me by the ultimate finance of the movies were Japanese. And as we all know, George is a, is a Japanese artist. And uh, when I met him, you know, he had all this surrealistic stuff. I've always been a huge fan of surrealism and expressionism and art, even from beyond the first posters that we made were based on a Dali painting. And all of a sudden we started just looking right, at Dali right. and saying, oh, let's put this image in it, this image. And if you look at the whole shunting, it's actually based on a Dali painting, you know, the big, oh. the big leg, it's, it's from the great it, 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 I mean, it really, I remember, um, Brian, I remember you coming and George showing you that mask that he had done with the, the hand yeah. that was pulling out. Yeah, I remember that. That was that was yeah. that was pretty um, inspiring for that. And then George's paintings also. I mean, they were just. Yeah. George, you know, I worked so much with George. He was my he was my number one guy to collaborate with on yeah. with with effects because George was not. He was so much less. I'm not. I in no way am diminishing the value of a technician. He's, he's, but he was a real artist. I mean, to a fault, he's a visionary. he I mean, just he's, had to do his own stuff. He was, he's yeah, not he's the guy you go to, he's not the guy you go to to get a head cut off. Go to KMD or something. Go to somebody who can, there's tons <laughs> of gags that you do, yeah. you know, that are, that can be done really great. George is not the guy that's going to do that because he doesn't stop inventing. So whatever he does, he's made, it's It's not going to be, I would never give him ordinary stuff to do in effect. I would give it to somebody who, who really wants to do something with that. With George, you want something conceptually, you know, that's pushing the boundaries conceptually that really adds something to the movie. And so that's usually, you know, that's where I would go with George. For example, with Brighter Reanimator, why give George a zombie, uh, you know, a reanimated corpse makeup? There's so many people who will do it with incredible um, enthusiasm and imagination, but George is going to want to do something. I think that, you know, you see George when you see that character that turns backwards and forwards. Yep. Right, right. This is weird yeah. stuff. This is. And one of the things we talked about on Reanimator, we didn't get a chance to do it because it's you just don't have time. But I wanted the the shunting to be a simulacrum of something else. You know, a simulacrum is when you see a face in the clouds or something. You know, right. when you when you right. see things in other things, or you change the lighting, or you know, you see these optical effects 
simulacrums where a vase is really two people kissing or the famous one is the woman at her right. vanity and it's mm -hmm. a big mirror and it's actually a skull if you look at it a certain way. The dolly so that kind of stuff was, I feel, is where horror is. It's this idea that it's kind of like if you go into an old dark house by yourself at night. Things are going to look. You're, you'll project what what thing. Right. Project your projection. You'll, you'll be out. You the world will start being how you feel, and, and which is also why I like expressionism, because in expressionism and the movies of the twenties that used expressionistic sets, the idea is that you don't put what's what a camera would catch out. I mean, you would don't put a rendering of, you know quotidian right. life you show the world as the character feels right you know that's that feeling is what you're trying to get across and that's what expressionism as i understand it is and and the simulacra is a further sense of that somebody goes crazy they'll see faces everywhere if you i think in the movie the haunting where you never see a ghost you do see that door and the paint pattern in the door, it starts being very creepy when you're getting scared. You start seeing things in it. So we worked on that on almost every movie I did with him. Um, but, and um, certainly in society was, I think society is his. We didn't do the simulacrum, but I think society was the only movie that George has ever worked on that provided him with, a, with an arena yeah. or a stage, a story where he could really do his thing because right. the, the, the logic of it is so out there, you know, yeah. it's yeah. so out there and anything George, you know, it fit totally with George. And unfortunately he's never, he's never been able to find another project that, that gave him that kind Another of step on that on that yeah, journey, right. but a lot of creative people, in my experience, find that to be the case in their careers or their lives. That it's just like an actor; you can be a great actor, but if you don't have the part, it doesn't yeah. matter, you know. And yeah. I think yeah. a lot of you know when you're working in the movies and artists who work in the movies, uh, effects artists, puppeteers. You're only as good as what what they give you in the script, and it's rare that you can have any influence on that story. Whereas mm -hmm. with George, I could take on what we were so I felt so comfortable with his aesthetic that I could take almost any idea, any visual idea he had, and try to give it a place, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was that was great for him. But even on movies like Progeny that he worked on, um, we tried to do these simulacrums of like the of the custom guys and the aliens match, matching. I mean, we're always I was always trying to, and I know he believes in that, trying to find a way to see an image and get two you know, two ways of interpreting it yeah. on a on a subconscious level, not on a logical level. But and I think that that's what, like I say, I think that's what madness is about. I think that fear 
you get that. I, and I think that if you could really capture that outside of a static image, right, if it could move, right. um, then right. you're in a world where you could really throw the viewer off base and almost have two levels of, of reality going on at once, which would, which would I think, be a, a very um, entertaining and impactful kind of um, horror movie. I agree. Well, you know, I, I've always said that, uh, that horror is, uh, is the thing that you don't see out of the corner of your eye. And with that, yes. we're going to have to say that we're all done here. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> thank so you that, very much, Brian. Thank you, Nick. So that was definitely Thanks something about society. So, guys, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Friendly reminder that you can listen to the audio-only version of this on ProjectLouder.net, your source for pop culture, and so much more. So this is your host with the motherfucking most, TJ Bowser. Thank you, Nick Benson. Thank you, Brian Usner, for joining us. Mick, I'll see you next week. And to all you listeners, bye-bye. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks, Nick. See you guys. Bye-bye.